Episode 70, Which Patients Are the Right Patients to Help the Most? Today, I speak with Annette Dubard of Community Care of North Carolina. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Back in the dark ages, when I was doing my economics undergrad, I learned the term opportunity cost. It's the classic concept, meaning if you spend your time or your money doing one thing, then you don't have enough time or money to do something else. Time and funds are not unlimited. So every choice you make, you're choosing what you're not going to do as much as what you are. I hadn't used the term opportunity cost in the context of healthcare until a few years ago, but now I don't think I can make it through an entire conversation without at least thinking about it. Because if we're talking about the triple aim, if we're talking about value, the dollars you spend need to net positive outcomes. If you're spending dollars and not getting improved health results, then you're throwing away money that could be spent helping someone who would actually benefit. Lose, lose. Today, I speak with Annette Dubard from CCNC, Community Care of North Carolina, about how to find the patients who will get the most out of the care support you provide. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Franklin Healthcom. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Annette. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Why don't you give us the lowdown on CCNC, which stands for the Community Care of North Carolina? Yeah, CCNC is a not-for-profit organization that's had a great deal of success in population health management, particularly for publicly insured populations in North Carolina. We've been at it for over 15 years uh, now and work through a very robust community-based infrastructure that links patients to a primary care medical home, but then builds a lot of wraparound supports at the community level around care management of patients with complex care needs and pharmacy management, behavioral health supports, uh, quality improvement initiative supports, so, uh, also convening stakeholders with aligned incentives around better systems of care within our healthcare communities. You're not a healthcare provider. You kind of work to help the providers in North Carolina. Is that how it works? Yeah, we're kind of a, a neat infrastructure that operates, you know, between the payer and the provider to to provide this level of accountability for improving quality and controlling costs, but really do it in a way that supports the providers that are caring for our patients and enabling these kinds of uh, extra supports that are really needed to bend the cost curve and to make tangible improvements in quality of care. So we don't expect for every individual provider to be able to do this kind of thing and accept uh, increasing accountability for these outcomes on their own, but rather recognize that we can all get a lot farther through shared infrastructure around that. Okay, now I'm getting to the bottom of this. You had mentioned that you help public payers. So in other words, Medicaid and maybe Medicare are your yes. primary payers that you're talking about? Is it mostly yes. Medicaid or, or both? Medicaid, Medicare? Yeah, so we statewide for the North Carolina Medicaid and health choice population, 
we operate this program that's over 1.5 million uh, beneficiaries. And then we've had a number of smaller initiatives with Medicare as well as commercial payers and some large employer organizations. So we've had, you know, more uh, uh, localized experience uh, with other populations. We do statewide also manage the duly eligible population, folks that have coverage both through Medicaid and Medicare, and do a lot of work in our communities around care coordination and primary care medical home for uninsured populations as well. You kind of an arm of the payer or accountable to the payer in some way, or are you more of an independent body which straddles that blank space between payers and providers? Yeah, for our work with Medicaid, we really are accountable to the Medicaid uh, program. So Medicaid supports us on a per member, per month kind of care coordination fee basis that is shared between the primary care medical home and this community-based infrastructure that I was uh, describing. So our accountability is to the state in terms of demonstrating those cost savings and quality improvement and access to care outcomes that we hold ourselves to. Uh, But we've had other arrangements, for instance, through employer organizations or directly with provider groups, depending on the payment structure, as all of this gets more complex over time. So it sounds like it's CCNC is sort of an entrepreneurial venture. In other words, you, you seek out opportunities to get yourself involved. Yes, absolutely. At the very, very beginning of this conversation, you had mentioned population health management as something that... CCNC is keenly involved in. And I know that is a lot of what you do all day, my friend. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. Can we dive a little bit deeper into the population health management that you are doing with these higher risk Medicaid, maybe dual eligible patients? You know, what's an example of a program that you're running, say? As we became more involved in helping to manage the care of complex patients as we expanded our, our reach into elderly and disabled Medicaid beneficiaries and dual eligibles, uh, which was in the neighborhood of seven to eight years ago. We really began building out our complex care management programs in a way that moved us away from disease management type of approach approaches, but really to understanding patients in the whole complexity of of their care needs. So really the the folks who tend to be most vulnerable in our system and to drive most of the avoidable costs and utilizations in our system are people with multiple uh, complex chronic uh, conditions and often behavioral health overlay. So Again, we've really evolved our approach over the past several years towards understanding who is most impactable through specific care management interventions within those group of more complex patients and in specific context of care. So we've done a lot of work around uh, transitional care support as patients are discharged from the hospital and have learned a lot about who benefits the most from that from transitional care supports and what degree of intensity is is, uh, necessary for different types of folks, but also uh, more broad-based care management outreach and intervention for people who we understand to be impactable based on the patterns of disease burden and and utilization that we see in the the data. So sorry, that was a little bit stumbling, but, but we really refined how we can use the data that's available to us to do an intelligent first pass when you're looking at a very large population of people to hone in on the folks who are most likely to benefit from the deployment of care management uh, resources. Uh, Very well said. 
And there's a couple of really interesting points. I have so many questions to ask you. I don't even know where to start. The the one thing I, I did think was really interesting was what you were talking about moving away from disease management into serving more the holistic patient's needs. Is mm-hmm. Do you feel like that is, you know, so instead of treating someone's cholesterol, in other words, or, or treating someone's diabetes more toward treating, what are the circumstances, maybe clinical and non-clinical, around what that patient's needs actually might be? W- would that be a way to describe it? Absolutely. And it's so you know, almost no one only has diabetes or only has high cholesterol. So at CCNC, and I'll admit we started like many other programs with a disease management approach. We rolled out an asthma program and a diabetes program and a heart failure program. That's what we were doing uh, kind of 10 years ago. But that's very uh, limited. And when you're can- for a person, you have to understand the whole uh, complexity of what they are dealing with, which is not only multiple chronic medical conditions, the dealing with acute complications of those conditions, but all of those other psychosocial uh, factors that influence our patient's ability to care for themselves over time and to access uh, the supports they need. So it's understanding the patients in the context of their own social support systems, their own communities, what resources are available, and really taking a very holistic view of what are the barriers for this individual to achieving the, the outcomes that we all desire. If you were going to make a pie chart, and this might not be a fair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, That's my nature. (laughs) So if you were going to make a pie chart, say you did have a patient with, you know, heart failure or diabetes or, you know, pick any disease that you like, how much of their outcome, you know, how much of that pie chart would you color in as being determined by, as you said, you know, psychosocial determinants? And how much would you color in based on making sure that you know, that they understood their health failure and were educated on it and, you know, like things that actually were disease management related? Well, you know, those two things are so closely interrelated. How well a person understands their, the care of their, of their medical conditions, their health literacy, if you will, is so influenced by all of these other factors that I, you know, I would feel comfortable saying the majority of that pie chart has to do with literacy, with patient capabilities, with access to the kind of tools and uh, information that people need to take charge of their own uh, health. But it's interesting. I mean, you kind of bring up an important concept that we have been able to get at even through data analysis, which is it is not so much recognizing just disease morbidity in terms of how we want to identify patients who are likely to benefit from an intervention, but you really are looking for signals of um, how people are using care, for instance, patterns of multiple preventable uh, ED visits or inpatient visits, uh, readmission patterns, and uh, use of disjointed services that are out of normal even for other patients who have that same clinical disease burden. So we're really looking for signals that this person is struggling to navigate the system 
and to stay in control of their chronic conditions above and beyond what is normal for a population of people with that same clinical disease burden. So it's those kinds of signals that we can begin to find even in administrative data are really pointing often to those psychosocial determinants that are going to be responsive to care management support. And that is probably a perfect segue back to a term that you had used earlier, which is understanding who is more impactable in in populations. And I understand exactly why you're saying that, because in this value-based healthcare world that we live in, you don't want to spend good money to not accomplish anything. (laughs) So I'm assuming assuming that what you mean by, uh, you know, impactable care is making sure that you're spending money helping patients who will actually benefit or take advantage. I'm I'm not sure what the what the proper terminology is there from Mm -hmm. the money that's being spent. Yeah. Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, we are for the kinds of care management, multidisciplinary care team support kinds of interventions that you want to be able to provide patients with complex care needs. For the most part, these are not activities that are reimbursed in the old fee for service kind of way. Um, you expect those activities to pay off in terms of uh, future reductions in avoidable hospital use. Um, or costs, but that requires a real calculus around how can I be confident that investing in these care management supports is indeed going to pay for itself in the, in, in the long run. That's, that's just the reality of, of uh, where we are. So to gain that confidence, we really need to move away from thinking about, I'm going to target the highest risk folks or the people who are having the hot, highest cost and utilization today or the people who are uh, predicted to have the highest cost in utilization tomorrow and move our thinking towards who I really want to identify are those patients who are going to actually benefit from the specific intervention. And those are two different things. High risk does not necessarily mean highly impactable. And you had mentioned before something I had never really considered you could do, but now that I know, I'm, I'm fascinated by it, which is what you had said by finding outliers in patterns of care. Are those individuals, you know, which group do those fall into or is it kind of, do they straddle both? In other words, are people who are not adhering maybe, I, I don't know, to a normal pattern mm-hmm. of care or are outliers in what a normal patient population does, are those simply high risk, or do those also tend to be people who are impactable? Yes. So our models around identifying impactability, one thing I'll say is that we are actually trying to predict against a true empirical measure of impactability, meaning we know based on our experience that a care management intervention tends to change that cost curve for people just like this uh, compared to you know matched controls. But what plays out as a very strong, I guess, a determinant of that impactability is this pattern that we're talking about that within, given a person's clinical disease burden, what you are seeing is potentially preventable hospital use, potentially preventable emergency department use, patterns of medication adherence or 
for duplicative other service use that go above and beyond what is normal for that patient's peer group. So it ends up playing out, you know, that instead of kind of flagging everyone in a very high risk cohort, so for example, patients with who have heart failure and advanced diabetes and COPD, who are all going to likely be high cost and high risk next year. Not all of them are going to really be amenable to care management intervention, but if you can hone in on the 5% of that group who have unusually frequent uh, visits to the emergency room or unusually high readmission patterns, then that really is a signal that this is a person who's likely to be responsive to more support from a care management team. And we know that because it's not just theoretical, we've been able to test that and measure it um, over our years of experience. If you have two patients, say, and one of them tends to sit at home and not take their medications and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, you know, and every now and then maybe show up in the ER. And then you've got another patient who's in the ER every other Friday. Yeah. It's, the, it's that second patient who, I mean, not only probably being far more expensive, that that patient also tends to be much more amenable to additional care support that you could provide. Those two things kind of go hand in hand. High resource utilization goes hand in hand with you can help this person. Well, high potentially preventable resource utilization. So uh, both of those patients may have high costs because they have the kind of disease profile that puts them on high medication, you know, that puts them on high cost medications or they're in dialysis and that's going to be a kind of a fixed cost, um, et cetera. But if, but it's that, that those ER visits, which are a clear signal, for some reason, this patient, even though they have the same medications, they have the same disease burden as the other patient, they are having a hard time. They keep showing up back in the ER. So that first patient you described, you know, the medication non-adherent patient, that's also a good predictor and that is likely to play out in terms of acute complications of their disease and leading to uh, higher utilization uh, patterns. But the, the, the person we're trying to distinguish both of those patients from is the person just like them, but has their act together. They understand what's going on. They understand what their medicines are for. They've they've gotten on a medication regimen that makes uh, that works for them. They have the kind of family and social supports that are allowing them to keep their appointments um, and to understand uh, red flags if things are going go awry to get appropriate care early um, as as needed. So you're just you're trying to really distinguish uh, the folks again who are falling through the cracks as apart from the folks who, who are keeping it together given the same burden of disease. But wouldn't that be the same as the super users? When we were talking before, we'd been talking about trying to figure out who the most highly impactable population segment might be. Is that actually the same as the super users? Great question. And it turns out uh, not to be a fine point on that, though there's definitely a, a lot of overlap. A fine point on super utilizer approaches, which, um, as you know, a lot of folks are kind of, that's a very compelling concept right now. And a lot of uh, state programs, as well as provider organizations, are putting programs in place around super utilizers 
And that's not a bad thing uh, to do. But a caveat there is that in the natural course of um, what's going to happen to that patient, a good segment of today's super utilizers, whether you're looking at people with high costs, high admissions, high ED use today, are actually not going to be tomorrow's super utilizers in the absence of any kind of special intervention. So one thing that's very compelling about our modeling strategies now is is that we're able to identify, even among that super utilizer group, people who are going to be much more likely to be persistent users of, of, of avoidable services um, so that, again, you're not deploying care management resources to folks who are likely going to be, who don't really need it. So I don't know if I'm making any sense. No, um, that makes total sense. You know, if, if you look just at a cohort of super utilizers over time, you get what people, you know, refer to as regression to the mean uh, statistically, but just meaning that over time, some proportion of the folks may have high mortality, that, so that might be their future, regardless of care management intervention, or they may be dealing with acute, really bad situation that is not going to turn into a chronic pattern of care. Uh, so there, it's, it's possible, um, it's increasingly possible to differentiate uh, between that kind of super utilizer and a persistent super utilizer who we know is going to be the highest kind of return on investment for that care management outreach. Obviously, at in North Carolina, you have some very sophisticated modeling, which is based on a lot of data. In for for other providers who maybe don't have a state organization similar or don't have access to quite as much data or maybe not as much data at all. Is it possible to do this math? It is possible. And we're able to, we've had the advantage of, as I said, being able to develop these models empirically because of uh, just this volume of uh, hundreds of thousands of, of, of patients every year who we have documented care management interventions are able to track um, longitudinally what really happened. You know, in our in our context, because we've been able to uh, develop out these models, we can now apply them to other populations. And so that speaks to, you know, if you're a smaller organization acting on your own, it's really hard to do this in kind of a homegrown way. It really does to get to the kind of granularity that we've gotten to. It takes a large volume observations. So I I think one is to take advantage of learnings um, from organizations of like ours. And two, I think it speaks to the need just from a societal perspective of really endorsing this idea that we need to be a learning health system. And there's a lot to be gained from kind of uh, pooling our <laughs> knowledge and, ex and experience and not, and not thinking that every small organization can do, you know, should be trying to do this from scratch. So that's kind of a little plug for um, my socialist tendencies, <laughs> perhaps. But, um, but it's, you know, it's, it's really, uh, it's really hard to imagine, you know, every hospital, every independent provider being able to start from scratch on this stuff and getting the same 
kind of return on an investment. And that's something we need, you know, we need to be concerned about um, for all the good reasons of a point of pushing accountability further kind of down the chain to providers. We also need to be smart about equipping those providers to be uh, successful. And how can we uh, on a larger scale learn from each other in a way that is important to the to the common good. And do you have any suggestions on that? So in other words, say I'm a, a smaller provider, or even a smaller payer, you know, or a solo payer. How do I, you know, if someone calls up and, you know, CCNC and says, hi, can I take a look at your model or, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, or, you know, are there other organizations or are these analytical models that people can buy and then run their patient cohorts through the engine or, or how does, how does that work? Yeah, so, I mean, I'll tell you what we're doing in North Carolina is really, you know, continuing to build out this uh, notion of even as our pro- even as provider organizations um, pursue these kinds of things and in, in some sense independently, that we all that there is a collaboration layer around data a- analytics and even around coordinated care management uh, activities. So we are really um, actively especially with our smaller independent practices, working to solidify a shared analytics and informatics uh, platform uh, that can take advantage of the, of the volume, take advantage of the common needs of scale without everyone having to be owned by somebody, <laughs> by somebody else. So I, it, it'll be, I think we need more models like this uh, to emerge where there is some, you know, volume advantage around analytics and informatics that can be leveraged even for independent actors in the uh, system. And yes, absolutely, you know, as, as, as other entities, you know, do approach us for what can we learn from you, then uh, we we definitely uh, work with them to, to implement our learnings um, for whatever context makes sense for them for their own populations and data availability. As always, all the links to CCNC are going to be on the website. So Mm -hmm. if anyone has interest, they should definitely head there for further insight. So I just have a couple of additional questions for you, you know, kind of around if I'm a a smaller provider or a payer, you know, like what lessons can I take away? What, What have you seen not work? Like, has there there been any notable fails that you have, you know, either attempted or, or helped people out of because they just simply weren't working? Yeah, you know, I think the most common thing is, as we were discussing before, that people tend to start uh, maybe with a super utilizer approach or it tend to start with, with things that make sense logically, clinically, I'm gonna go after my, my highest one or 5% of cost patients or my highest ED utilizers or my, or my, even my patients with the, with the highest comorbidity score. Or these are all uh, common methods out there. And I guess I want to be clear that there's nothing wrong with any of that. Uh, there's a lot of need out there. Uh, and, the, and, we are uh, doing more good than harm <laughs> whenever we are w- supporting these folks. The, the distinction is, is just more about uh, the yield of that and what, what can you expect in terms of actual bending of the cost curve uh, through those different uh, strategies. 
So, you know, we, we uh, have learned that we're really going to see about a, a twofold return on investment if we are using our impactability score strategy as compared to a super utilizer approach or a predictive modeling approach that predicts highest costs or highest inpatient utilization. So again, it's not that care management deployment is doing any harm in that regard. It's just about optimizing the yield, making the best use of the care team's uh, time. To put it another way, you know, in the context of transitional care, a lot of folks are doing more trans. Uh, transitional care type interventions and trying to get at this uh, readmission rate problem for a variety of incentives. And we've really learned that a lot of hospital discharges are, those folks are a very low risk of readmission and deployment of um, extra care team supports uh, for those folks are really unlikely to benefit anyone in terms of 30-day readmission um, occurrence because those folks for low risk in the beginning so getting getting intelligent about targeting, uh, we currently target about 25% of Medicaid discharges in North Carolina as folks who we know are at very high risk of readmission and are going to benefit from support. And it's a smaller group within that who we prioritize for very intensive home visit support with clinical pharmacy involvement and kind of the, the bigger uh, package of, of uh, in, intensive care management support. All of that is data-driven so that we are, again, making the best use of the resource, optimizing the return on investment to keep, make this whole thing sustainable. There's a number of people that listen to the show who are makers of, say, apps or technology that actually are directed at specific disease categories. In other words, maybe they have a whole program around lower back pain or asthma or or COPD, and maybe they, they have a platform or apps that support or education that support those very specific diseases. Knowing what you said earlier about how, you know, the non-clinical factors can be so incredibly important towards their care, do you have any advice for somebody who is much more niched in the disease management area? How can they interlock or help support these other activities that are are going on? Yeah, you know, so in the I mean, support of complex care management in our model is that once you are now engaged with a patient, you do bring whatever tools to bear that may make sense for that patient. And so there are a lot of great tools out there that may be helpful for for that individual patient if it's, you know, telemetry monitoring um, focused on heart failure. If that is a key component of that patient's issue, then these are these are the kinds of tools that we will bring to bear, you know, once that individual needs assessment is done type of thing. The the problem with very broad-based deployment or non-discriminate deployment of those kinds of tools across a population is just again in the cost the cost value equation. So not everyone with heart failure really needs that telemetry program or I can't I can't remember which example you, you use but not everyone with any 
given disease state needs is, is likely to benefit from all the bells and, and whistles. So to prove out the value proposition, I think for any of these examples, it's really about being gaining our intelligence around how to best identify that subgroup of patients who are really likely to benefit. If we don't start targeting things to uh, the most impactable folks, then the benefit gets it, it ends up getting washed out um, in the analysis. And people are learn people learn this, you know, over and over again in, in many different uh, settings. That it's really all about appropriate targeting of what we have to offer. And that really is something that has to happen at the organizational level and really at the population slash patient level. It's it, There's nothing necessarily which is a marker relative to a specific disease That's right. that any sort of disease management organization is going to be able to maybe weigh in on the, the targeting. Or, or is there anything that some of these organizations that might have analytics about their specific disease you know, is there is there anything that they could, for example, provide which could wind up being an in, information stream in in the larger model that you have, for example? Oh, Stacey, I don't know. That's a big, <laughs> big question. <laughs> um, the answer is probably uh, sure. I mean, we we are refining and improving our models uh, kind of all the time as as more. Uh, data becomes available from other kinds of uh, sources. So I, I think the limitation of, uh, you know, an entity that's coming at it with blinders on around a specific disease state is just that so much of the, so much of the story of that patient is, you know, as we've been talking about out, outside of just that right. specific disease state. So I, I really do think you'd have to take a broader lens to these things. No, and and that does make total sense. I was just trying to figure out if there is any way to to collaborate in that sense. Yeah. But I really thank you for being on the program, Annette. This has been incredibly enlightening. Well, it's been fun. Thanks for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, You will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far. There are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.